Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. My Bible is open to the Psalter, Psalm 131. We're studying through the Psalms of Ascent. We come today to Psalm 131, which is only three verses in length, but it addresses one of the most important subjects in all the Bible, and that is the way to contentment of the soul. In fact, that is the title of the sermon, Contentment of the Soul. I have often remarked that one of the rarest human conditions I have observed is contentment. Because most people seem to be in an unending pursuit of more or different or better. It seems though that humans have always been prone to discontentment. After all, it was our first parents, Adam and Eve, that were given access to a panoply of delicious food in the Garden of Eden and yet they desired what they were prohibited from having. We have been suffering the result of their discontentment till today. But I suspect the problem is worse in our own day due to the multiplied millions of dollars spent each year in advertising, which is designed really to prompt all of us to desire more and different and better than we presently have. Now, King David was the author of this Psalm, Psalm 131. His life was not always marked by contentment. In fact, it was David who had numerous wives, and though he did, he wanted the wife of his friend and trusted ally Uriah. And he took what he wanted and nearly destroyed his life and many others in the process. And yet here he is writing this short psalm about the blessedness of contentment of the human soul. And it is very instructive for those of us living today. Believe it or not, it has something to say about moms here on Mother's Day. So let's read it, Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rest against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now I don't know anyone who would say that they don't desire more contentment. But I know very few people who truly are content. In these three verses, David gives us a roadmap to contentment. It is a destination that is arrived at through humility, through submission, through struggle, but ultimately through faith. Well, look at verse one. He says that contentment comes through humility. He says, my heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. David understood that the root of discontentment is pride. Indeed, it seems that the root of all sorts of sin is pride. The attitude that sin reveals in us is that we think we know better than God or that perhaps God's promises can't be trusted. That's exactly the tactic that Satan appealed to with Eve. Eve said, if we eat of this tree, we will surely die. God has said. Satan said, you will not surely die. God knows that if you eat of this fruit, you'll know what he knows. He appealed to her pride. Satan, and indeed our own flesh, run that same play over and over and over. In our lives, 
with little nuances of variation. It often sounds something like this. You deserve blank. You deserve a better life. You deserve a better spouse. You deserve a nicer house. You deserve a newer car. And before you know it, you find yourself despising the very things that you once gave God profuse thanks for. But contentment is not just a goal or a pipe dream. It is a command of God to obey. 1 Corinthians 6, 8, Paul writes, If we have food and clothing, let us therewith be content. Food and clothes are the basic necessities of life. And Jesus reminded his disciples often that they didn't have to worry about the basics of life, be anxious over those things, because he said, your father knows you have need, need of them. And he cites the birds of the air, the flowers of the field as being beneficiaries of God's provision in those areas. And the question is begged, how much more does God love you than flowers and birds? But unlike flowers and birds, humans are not easily satisfied. And he gives us examples in the scripture of those who because of their discontentment suffered the judgment of God. And the one that likely comes to your mind right away is the nation of Israel. God's chosen people, the apple of his eye, the sheep of his pasture. They cried out to him when they were in bondage down in Egypt. He heard them, he sent them a deliverer. He brought them out of the land and had promised to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. And yet every step of the way they complained. They were discontent. The Apostle Paul, a Jewish man himself, writes in 1 Corinthians 10 that the record of their discontentment was recorded so that we would read it and not make the same mistake. He says this, Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all of these things happened unto them for examples and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. What Paul says is that that generation of Israelites was prone to murmuring. Now murmuring is discontentment expressed audibly. Not exactly perceptively, but audibly. The word murmur is an automatopoeia word. It sounds like what it is, like the boom of a firecracker. Murmur, murmur. All you moms have had murmuring children. You give them some commandment and they may do it, but they do it by murmuring. Israel was prone to murmuring. They were discontented quite often and quite audibly with God's provision for them in the wilderness. Didn't take long right after they left Egypt, they became discontent with the whole plan that God had laid out. They said to Moses, you've brought us out here to die, haven't you? They, they were discontented with Moses, their leader that God had given them. And pretty soon they had a rebellion led by a man named Korah. God killed a number of them for that. They were even discontent with their food. You moms can't relate to that at all. They said, Let, let's go back to Egypt. At least there we had cucumbers and garlic to eat. They must have been hungry. <laughs> and so God gave them manna from heaven and quail for protein. They were discontent with that. Ultimately though, they were discontent with their God. And so the second that God's leader left for a few moments, 
they complained to Aaron and said, we want another God. And they gave him jewelry and gold and they melted it down and made a golden calf to worship. But all of that discontentment ultimately was about pride. For those 40 years that they wandered in the wilderness, they never arrived at a place where they truly accepted that God knew what he was doing. They thought they knew better than God. And that pride in one's heart usually manifests itself not just in the heart, but in the face and in our body language. So the Bible says one of the things that God hates is a proud look because it gives away a proud heart. But David calls it here haughty eyes. He says, I don't have haughty eyes, prideful eyes. It's a superior posture or disposition. See, David understood that the road to contentment had to necessarily go through humility. And the evidence that we are humble is that we submit to God's will and plan. That is, we realize He knows better than us. And we submit to Him, not just with our mouth, but with our mind, our body, and our spirit. And so that is the second stop on the road to contentment. It's submission. Look at the second half of verse 1. He says, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. Now that sounds a whole lot like anti-intellectualism. We Southern Baptists are accused sometimes of that. David was a brilliant man though. He, he certainly was not anti-intellectual. I, I sometimes hear people though even in the church when they are confronted with a difficult passage in the Bible or a complex theological point just sort of throw up their hands and say, oh well that's too hard to understand. Let's move on. That is not what David is saying at all when he says, I don't concern myself with great matters, things too wonderful for me. We ought to think deeply to, to the point of exhaustion because we want to know what the Bible has to say and what it means. I have a friend who's a pastor who often tells his congregation that some truths are worth getting a migraine over. And he's right. What David is acknowledging here is that there are certain things that only God knows and that in his sovereignty he's chosen not to reveal those things to us and therefore we must be content because we trust him. He's talking about the why questions of life. Here's some examples of the why questions. Why does that family never seem to have any problems and all we seem to have is problems? Why does that woman in my Sunday school class live a good, long, healthy life and I have cancer? Why? Why? Now there was a man in the Bible that had why questions. He was not a faithless man. In fact, he was a good man, faithful man, but he lost everything over time. His children, his business, and ultimately his own health. And he came to a point where he demanded of God some answers. He wanted to know why. That man's name was Job. And if you remember the story of Job, his was not a brief momentary type of suffering. His was an all-consuming day after day, week after week, month after month suffering. And it had the effect that rain does on rock. It wore him down over time where he lost his contentment of soul. And if you'll turn back 20 or 30 pages in your Bible, you'll come to the book of Job, specifically Job chapter 38. Remember Job wanted to know 
from God some answers. He wanted to know why all these things had happened to him. He really called God and his character into question. And so God is gracious. He didn't strike Job dead, but he did give him an audience. He didn't tell him why, as we'll see, but he did speak to him. And Job 38 says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you will instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment and the thick darkness its swaddling band and I placed boundaries on it and I set a bolt and doors and said, thus far you shall come but no farther and here shall your proud waves stop. He said, Joe, where were you when I dug the seas? Did I ask you for the specifications, the depth, the length, the breadth? Now, those 11 verses I just read are, are just the introduction to that section. This goes on for three chapters. Now, I'll be honest, it's hard to read all three chapters in one sitting. If you've ever been in a room where a friend of yours is getting scolded by his parents, and it goes on minute after minute to the point where you're looking at your feet and you want to be anywhere but there, that's what's happening to Job. But God is not being unkind to Job. He is saying, Job, there are things that are beyond you as a human. So just relax and let me do my job. But like Job, that trust is almost always arrived at through struggle. Job, we saw last week, said, as the sparks fly upward, man is made for trouble. All of us in this life are going to have trouble. The question is, are you going to be shaped and molded and sanctified by that trouble or not? But when we submit to God, even through struggle, that's when he brings contentment. Look at verse 2. He says, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Now you'll remember that David, who wrote these words, was a man's man. In fact, he was a mighty warrior. You remember the song, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. He was revered by his people then and now, but he describes the point that he came to in his life of contentment. And the imagery he evokes is of a weaned child with his mother. Get the picture of a three or four year old child because that's when they weaned children, ladies, in those days, content and resting in her lap. Now, most men, if we have any area of tenderness at all left in our heart, it's at the point of our mothers. You'll see a 250 pound fullback score a touchdown and the first thing he does is to find the nearest television camera and say, hi mom. I have seen grown men call each other the worst names you can imagine and laugh about it. And I've seen those same men come to blows at the slightest insult to one of their mothers. One of the most heart-wrenching scenes I've ever viewed in a movie was a depiction of our World War II troops storming the beach at Normandy. And when the doors 
were open to that landing craft, you know that they were greeted with a blizzard of bullets. Hundreds of them died there on the beach. And in that scene, historians tell us it's very accurate. Many of those dying were calling out for their mothers. For most of us, the simplicity and security of childhood is tied to memories of our mothers. Our mother's care and provision and watch care over us. But learning to settle down and being content with our mother in her presence was a struggle. Now likely we don't remember that struggle, but she does. That's why you need to call her today if she's still living. Thank her. So David compares his contentment of soul to a weaned child, not just an infant or a toddler, a weaned child. You see, before a child is weaned, the presence of his mother is not a time to settle down. The second he gets in her lap, he's discontent. It's his opportunity to say, give me. And I think what David here is describing is what we on this side of the cross would call Christian maturity. See, when we are baby Christians, our time with God, our devotional life, our prayer life is all about give me. We come to God and we have a grocery list. Lord, I need you to do this, 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 and this. Amen. Fortunately, like with Job, God is patience. He doesn't rebuke us for coming day after day. In fact, he tells us to do that, doesn't he? Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray, said, pray like this. Give us this day our daily bread. We are invited to come with boldness into his presence and make our petitions, our needs known. But he doesn't want it to end there. Unfortunately, some folks' prayer life never goes past the gimme stage. As we mature in the faith, we realize that our needs really are few, and so our list gets shorter. And we seek to spend time with God, not to ask for things, but just because we desire to be with Him. David seems to have arrived at that place in his life when he writes this psalm. That place where he can settle down and spend time with God and delight and rest in His presence. He says, like a weaned child. When you were a baby, mom was just the person that kept you alive with her milk. As you got older, perhaps after you left home, you began to appreciate her more, not for what she could do for you, but for who she was. You could settle down and develop friendship. As we saw in our introduction to the Psalms of Ascent, David was not only concerned with his personal worship, but he desired all of his people to have that same passion and experience. So verse 3 is a call to Israel. Look at it. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Now David was the king. He wanted some things for his nation. He wanted them to be blessed by God. He wanted peace. We saw a couple of weeks ago, he told them to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But he understood that ultimately their hope was not in him or any political system. It was in the Lord. So he says, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forever. And so the destination of contentment, and that's what we're talking about today, the roadmap to contentment, is arrived at through humility. 
The Bible says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and He will exalt you in due time. Through submission. Submission is the outward revelation of the humility that is within. And through struggle. He never promises us an easy life. But it is through struggle that we are sanctified, that we're made more like Him, and we come to depend upon Him rather than ourselves. But all of that requires faith, trust, belief. The, the real question before us this morning is, do we believe what God says is true? Eve didn't. Adam didn't. And so God says, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Don't do it. It's bad for you. Satan says, God's not telling you the truth. He's holding back from you. Eve and Adam believed a lie rather than the truth. And we are faced, each one of us, with that same decision every day, multiple times a day. Are we going to believe the truth or not? Do you believe what God says is true? Do you trust Him? And that really is, friends, what faith is. It's simply trusting God. Many of us memorized Hebrews 11.1 1 as children. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That really was what David is conveying here in verse 3. He says, I'm going to trust the Lord even in the things I don't understand, and I want all my people to trust the Lord even in things that they don't understand. Things that are too great for them, in other words. David put his hope, his trust, not in more or different or better circumstances. That's what the whole advertising industry is trying to get all of us to do. Every time you turn on the television, every time you see an ad on the internet, every time you read an ad in the paper, there is someone trying to convince you that if your circumstances were different or better, then you would have true happiness. And the Bible says, don't you believe it. In other words, Christian commitment, excuse me, Christian contentment is not a function of favorable circumstances. That's what your lost friends believe. They think if I could just have favorable circumstances, if I could just find a marriage partner that really gets me, if I could just live in a neighborhood a little nicer than the one I'm in, if I could just drive a nicer car, if I had more toys, if my children went to a better college, then my life would have fulfillment and then I would be content. No, you would not. You would be in a constant struggle for more or different or better. It's like the billionaire who was asked how much is enough and he answered just a little more. But you don't have to be a billionaire to have that attitude. Christian contentment is never to be a function of favorable circumstances. It is a function of our trust and faith in Christ. And if there was ever a Christian who was content, it was the Apostle Paul. His life was certainly 
not always filled with favorable circumstances. In fact, he sometimes just ran down some things that had happened in his life. He said, I was in prisons often, shipwrecked twice, a day and a night I spent in the deep. I was beaten with whips, beaten with rods. They threw rocks at his head. They ran him out of town on a rail. And yet, after that list, he says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to come. Paul's contentment in Christ was not a function of favorable circumstances. I know that because of what he writes in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. He's writing to those dear folks in Philippi and he says, not that I speak from want. He doesn't want them to think he's complaining, but he's praising. He says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means and I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and growing hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Paul says, if I have a porterhouse steak or if I have oatmeal for dinner, if I live in a mansion or I'm in prison, if people like me or they don't, he says, I've learned how to be content. I can do all things who through him who strengthens me. He's learned to trust the Lord in every circumstance of life. When he's healthy, and he rarely was, or when he's sick. When he's free, or when he's imprisoned. When people listen to him, or when they stop their ears, he still keeps on trusting Christ. Dear friends, that is the secret of contentment. It begins with humility. Lord, I don't know what to do. I recognize that you know better than I. I submit to you, mind, body, and spirit. Wherever you want me to go, wherever you want to take me, whatever you want me to do in this life, that's what I want to do. But I know even then it's going to be a struggle. As sparks fly upward, man is made for trouble. But through the dangerous toils and snares of life, I'm going to hold tenaciously to the cross. I'm going to trust you because I know how the story ends. That is the path to contentment. Do you want that? I do. We need to pray for it. It comes with a price. It comes with a price of giving up the baubles and all the things in this world that vie for the affection and the love that we owe only to Christ. We have to be willing to part with all of those things for the surpassing joy of being content in Jesus. Like David says, a weaned child with his mother. Let's pray for that contentment together, can we? Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you because you have made some exceeding great and precious promises to us. Just like you promised the uh, Hebrew children who wandered in the wilderness that there was a land flowing with milk and honey, you promise us that you are even now preparing a place for us, that this world is not our home. We are to view our lives, Peter says, as aliens and strangers, pilgrims. We're just traveling through here, but Lord, as we travel, there's a culture that's trying to distract us, to allure us by things 
trying to convince us that if we had more or different or better circumstances, then we'd have true contentment. Father, we're given at least two great examples in the Old Testament. One, our first parents who failed to believe you and because of pride thought they knew better than you. And then we have the example of the nation of Israel, Lord, who because of their murmuring and discontent perished in the wilderness. And so, Lord, we pray that we learn the lessons that uh, the Bible teaches us about them. Help us to be humble. Help us to be submissive as your children, obedient. Help us, Father, to go through the trials and the pains of life with a view that this world is temporary and heaven is eternal. In short, Lord, grant us by faith the contentment of a weaned child with his mother. And we pray it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.